All right, today I'm joined by Michael Doyle. Michael and I met at Red Hat, and we've been on somewhat of a similar journey, and we periodically check in with each other. And even though we haven't met in person, I'm in Portland, Oregon, and Michael lives in the future in Brisbane, Australia, where it's tomorrow. We thought we would talk about a book that we both read. So, Michael, what's the future like today? The future is sunny and bright, John. How's the, how's the, how's the past looking for you? <laughs> there's, there's all kinds of horrible metaphors there. Huh? <laughs> I love it. So, Michael and I, I don't even know how we first met. We both were at Red Hat for a long time and somehow knew each other, I guess. Um, we talk periodically and we're looking for i don't know several months ago i was like we got a podcast on something we didn't know what it was you mentioned that you had read this book titled the ego is the enemy by ryan holiday and i'd heard about it and i thought well what better excuse than to read the book that which will keep me accountable and then we'll discuss it so that's what we're here to do today before we get there tell people who michael is Oh, great question, John. Um, Michael is a person who is undergoing a significant life change, uh, mostly career focused. And I think, you know, going back to your point and how we met, it was really around um, our love for coaching. And so we're both uh, on our life paths, uh, exploring uh, what coaching means to us and how we can be of service to others. So uh, that's where I'm at at the moment is um, establishing myself as a coach uh, instead of uh, what it was I used to do. And what did you used to do? Um, so I used to uh, work for uh, Red Hat, as, as you know. I was there for a little over nine years um, as a, a manager of an internal communications team. And coming out of that was kind of interesting because I never expected to work for a company for that long. And I think coming out of it, I started to realize that uh, while I think there's a lot of good things about working for a company for a long period of time, there are also some things that uh, I neglected uh, over those years that I now have to face and take ownership of and kind of inspect and look at and rebuild in a, in a, in a new way. Wow. Do you want to say what any of those things are? Uh, <laughs> I think uh, a lot of uh, understanding what my core values are, um, looking at some of my beliefs and examining if they still serve me today as they used to, and if not, uh, what could be some new beliefs that I could switch them out with that would be of better service to me right now? Um, what is work uh, in the complete aspect of my life? So uh, rather than a work-life balance, if, if I look at it if I look at it as a pie, where work is a piece of the pie, how does that fit into the whole pie? Wow. And that explains it, people. That's why we connect all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Michael and I talk about real stuff, just like those things. So I love it. Well, let's talk about some real stuff in this book. Um, so Eagle, Eagle. <laughs> Ego is the Enemy is the name of the book. The book is interestingly broken into three sections, which I thought was interesting. Aspire, success, and failure. And it's this idea of this arc. You know, you aspire for something, you're successful, and then inevitably you fail. And the book kind of looks through the lens of what does ego look like in each of those areas? And I guess challenges to be aware of the ego, a lot of stories of where ego played a very negative role. Um, I don't know, did he have any examples where ego was actually a positive thing? Uh, I don't think like pure ego was a positive thing. I think keeping ego in check kept things going in a positive direction. So for me, it was all about identifying when ego is showing up and not letting it be the main driver um, of what's happening in your life, but kind of understanding it does have a place in your life, but it serves you better when it's restrained or uh, used cautiously, maybe one could say. Mm-hmm. And also, I guess, just the notion of awareness, just knowing that it's there, <laughs> ready to ready to swing into action and, and not service. And that's the point that really caught me off guard the first time I read the book. So uh, I was watching a, a YouTube video uh, where um, uh, Marie Folio, some of the, the listeners might know her, um, she was interviewing Ryan Holiday about uh, some of his works and, and this book came up. 
and uh, I noted it down as something to read and I started reading it and that's where it really hit me where I didn't, I never thought of myself um, as having an ego. I thought people who had an ego had more of that observable behaviours um, that the ego has and then as I was reading the book, I realised I'm a human being and I totally have an ego and that's when I started to understand what my ego looks like to me um, and that it's, it's a question I want to ask you next, John, but um, my ego to me is kind of this character that's uh, wearing a cloak, uh, a little bit like Obi-Wan Kenobi because it uses Jedi mind tricks on me except it uses it uses those mind tricks for its own purpose, uh, not in the service of goodness. <laughs> so that's kind, of how I, that's kind of how I see my ego at the moment. And as I was reading the book, I could literally feel my ego saying things to me like, oh, I could see how you would see this in other people, Michael, but don't worry, you don't have that problem. <laughs> so you're asking me, what does my ego look like? Yeah, describe what your ego looks like, John. You have the best coaching questions. We were laughing before we started. Michael is a, is a coaching ninja and he coaches, he coaches stealthily sometimes. He just did that to me right there. Did you see that, people? All right. So what – I guess I thought of the ego – I hadn't really thought of it in that way. I thought of it, I guess, a little bit as an inner critic. So the inner critic, saboteur, gremlin kind of thing. But those are usually things that talk me out of taking action and meaning the status quo. Whereas the ego, yeah, I guess I think of the ego as is that notion of I'm better than I really am, or uh, yeah, nothing's wrong with me. And <laughs> I think the first place that my ego was triggered in reading this book was. How can this guy be so young and so wise? Like, this guy's 30 years old. And he wrote a book that I would say is, you know, someone a fraction of that age. Yeah, I think in that too, as so I reread the book in the last couple of days preparing for this uh, podcast uh, because originally I had read it some time ago. A couple of things on that. One, I didn't really want to reread it, and I, I realize now that was my ego, not wanting to go back and face <laughs> up to some things. So I'm really glad that I had this opportunity to reread it. But in rereading it, I, I did kind of think of a similar thought to what you just mentioned, but I could see how uh, Ryan really devoted himself to the work, uh, and that's what makes it good. As he was writing the book, he obviously took the lessons that he was learning from the research and applied yes. them into, into his work, and it, it comes through. It, yeah, it comes through like in spades. I mean, the bibliography to this book is huge. His suggested follow-up reading list is super solid. And like the number of stories, and I guess you could call them anecdotes. They were no, this wasn't like one of those fluff books, though, where you just, the stories feel contrived and kind of dragged in to make a point. Like the book really does flow and it really, like the stories really do make a really strong point. They do. And I, I love some of those stories just for the stories themselves. I mm -hmm. found when I was reading it again, uh, I'd slow down a lot uh, when those stories came up. Maybe it's just the, the joy of, of reading stories. Uh, but, I, but I love the way, and I really kind of picked this up on the second read, the way the book is broken down into those three main sections, the aspire, success and failure and how ego I want to say tries to undermine you in each of those phases that we go through and then being able to recognize, look back on my life and recognize going through those phases and how ego played a role there uh, and then trying to derive lessons from that. I found that quite, quite interesting. What sections would you like to call out or, or maybe that jumped out at you that you think are worth discussing? Definitely from a high level, what I, what I saw uh, coming up in each of the sections uh, was this idea of um, having kind of clarity, focused discipline and purpose. So in the Aspire section, he talks about purpose over passion. Uh, it's, it's, it's much better to be purposeful uh, with your work rather than just riding on pure passion. And in the following sections, uh, that turns more into kind of a focus and a discipline. So I guess as ego starts to appear... Uh, one way to kind of uh, help put it back into place is to go back to your purpose. You know, why are you doing this? You know, what are the values that you, you're trying to 
you know, exhibit by doing this or achieve by doing this uh, and bringing it back to the work every time. So the idea of, of doing and working over being and having. Mm, and what I hear there too is that the a lot of times people in coaching, they'll say, you know, I just need something to just motivate me. If I could just really find what motivated me, then I would do it. But my experience is that the motivation is kind of short-lived. And I guess I'd group maybe motivation with passion. Yeah, I, I struggle with that a lot too. So I tend not to do things unless I'm motivated to do them. But at the same time, I understand you, it, I don't think it's, you don't think you necessarily just have to wait around until motivation shows up. Um, I watched a great series on Netflix not too long ago called um, Abstract. And each episode followed um, someone who had been highly successful in their field and described their story or their stumbling blocks along the way. One of the episodes was about a man who uh, is a cartoonist and he is disciplined that he goes to his uh, workspace every morning at the same time and he just starts to draw. So he may have no ideas, he may not feel like doing any work, but he just gets in and starts working because he realises that in the process of that working, ideas start to show up and then he has something he can go on and work with. So I really like that. And uh, I'm, try- I'm trying to implement that in my life, but I, I wouldn't say I'm 100% there yet. No, that's beautiful because uh, Steve Chandler had something in a book I was recent- recently listening. Uh, re- I don't know if it was a book. On- anyway, book on tape or an audio program he had. But <laughs> he had this idea. He calls it he calls it blue collar. Well, he's he's really targeting talking to coaches, but it applies to anyone like writers or creatives or you and me. But it was this idea of of blue collar of you just show up. You know, he said, <laughs> he said, you know, truckers, if you drive a truck for a living, truckers don't have truckers block. <laughs> like like <laughs> like where they wake up in the morning they're just like, you know, I'm just not feeling it for my truck today. So, you know, I'm just not going to drive the truck. Now maybe I get I guess I could call in sick or something. But it was just this notion that when you have a job that's more like that, where there's like, you know, you're, you're actively doing something versus using your brain maybe as much, you just show up and you just do it. And I'm assuming that if you do it for a while, you kind of get into it or you find ways to make it more interesting. And so, I, yeah, I've kind of been thinking along those same lines of, yeah, it's not how do I motivate myself? It's no, you start actually doing the work and then the motivation comes along later. Yeah. My sister was talking about, now I can't, the details are really sketchy. I can't, unfortunately, I can't remember the complete details of this, but the, the idea behind it was um, a countdown. So there was this, there was this lady who um, I think her husband had passed away and she was having trouble kind of, you know, getting out of bed in the morning and, and facing life. And one night she watched a, um, a rocket launch. And so she decided the next day when the alarm went off, she was going to count herself down to zero and get out of bed. I've heard and of this. So, yeah, yeah. That, that idea of just count yourself into it and do it. And then say I, I go. Guess, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess it's the same about, you know, when you when you want to go for a swim and you know the water's cold, like you just got to find that thing that makes you <laughs> jump in the air and, and then gravity will take care of the rest. Yeah. I usually don't jump in. <laughs> <laughs> I hate cold water. Uh, I love this section. I don't know what. So I just kind of took my notes with page numbers, so I don't know what section this is in. But this was, it was this idea of service. Um, and this is what he said, page 56. Imagine if every person you met, you thought of some way to help them, something you could do for them. And you looked at it in a way that entirely benefited them and not you. The cumulative effects over time would have been profound. You learn a great deal by solving diverse problems. You develop a reputation for being indispensable. You'd have countless new relationships. You'd have an enormous bank of favors to call upon down the road. And I thought that was interesting and in the kind of in the spirit of coaching and practice development, which is something that I'm in the midst of, is it's holding more of this mindset of serving than what you can get from the other person. Yeah, I, I love that too. Um I'm trying to practice uh more of that uh, myself. Uh, and I think that ties into the discipline that he talks about, not letting your ego distract you. So he gives you some, I guess there were some examples I kind of saw and there were some loose examples, you know, in the Aspire section, when you're, when you're trying to build something to achieve something, then ego can take you off course through distractions that aren't necessary. Um, you know, in the success phase, the ego shows up more as 
uh, inflating you to think you're more than you are and you get distracted and put off course that way. And then in the failure phase, you know, the ego, uh, if, it, if it was too inflated, obviously takes a, a big crunch uh, and then can do you a disservice through, through that negative side. Um, and I think discipline is, you know, one way to, to overcome the ego uh, getting out of check. You know, I, I look at my children. I've got two daughters. One's 11 years old. The other's eight years old. They started learning piano uh, at the start of the year. And every morning they get up at 6.30. The eldest one practices for 30 minutes while the youngest one gets ready for school. Then they switch roles. And I can hear the improvement that they've made over the year because they've put that discipline in. They don't lay in bed and think, I'll just have 10 more minutes. They're up. The alarm goes off. They're up. They do it. On their own? On their own. I think it's maybe because they don't know any different. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing a good job over there. (laughs) Wow. I've I've looked at that as a learning example for my life and thought about like how – I'm just not totally living up to that right now. So I, I've started making more of a commitment to myself to focus on developing habits in place of setting goals. Um, so I think it's tying back to this idea of serving others, you know, not for yourself but for them. Uh, and I, I think the habit forming over time, well, at least at the very minimum, you know, in, in months or years to come, I'll have better habits. So <laughs> there's no loss there. No, no, no. You'll have a body of work. You'll have, yes. Yes. What uh, what section jumped out at you? What's next? What was next on your little list? Yeah, I loved. Um, I'm going to rephrase it in my own words. Um, again, it was about focus, and I kind of put it into my own quote, which is, "We are all on different life paths, but we are all on the same journey of life." And so, as you're on your life path, other people are going to cross it, uh, and this is when the ego can play a role in distracting you from your life path as you compare, contrast yourself with these other people intersecting you and you might want to wander off in their direction when really you need to understand what your direction is and keep following your direction. So that was a part that really that really jumped out at me. So you see the ego as keeping you on the path. Yeah, I see the ego as um, taking you off the path because as someone crosses your path, you might see... It it might even be genuine, something in them that that you admire and you start sort of pursuing the way they're doing things, but really your your ego can play a role in, you know, allowing yourself to get distracted, I guess. So, you know, what was coming through for me in the book was this idea of discipline, which is is going back to your your purpose and your values. Uh, And then you've got something to compare with. So when you admire something in someone else, you can say to you, you know, you can say to yourself, "How does this, how does this benefit my purpose and my values?" And if it does, you can bring it in, and if it doesn't, you can let it go. Mm. So I, yeah, because I guess I wondered how this tied in. So I saw the ego pop up in a situation where I was looking at a possibility of doing some coaching work for a company, and I had to go through this. I don't know what you call it, a trial or something so they could observe my coaching. And at the end of it, it came down to that they said that I wasn't a fit. And I was in the midst of reading this book. It was really interesting to kind of be aware of, oh, I think my ego is coming into play here because I was disappointed. I was was disappointed. I don't know if hurt's the right word, but I was like, oh, I thought I did a pretty good job there. And it got really kind of murky because... There were certain parts of what they were expecting from my coaching, and I would assume other people they take on to do this particular type of coaching. It was it was basically a company that was contracting coaching to other companies, so they were kind of a broker. Part of it was like, well, their approach to coaching, I don't, I don't know that I'm philosophically in alignment, so of course it didn't work. But then I realized that was also a little bit of me saying you know, trying to, I don't know, say, yeah, I'm not that bad or whatever. So I felt like ego was coming in there, but I'm feeling like in in this moment, I'm not able to articulate what ego was in that context. Can you, (laughs) can you help explain that to me? I'm not sure if I can help explain it. Like I can share uh, a similar story from my side and maybe we can piece the two together and and see what we can extract from it. But uh, I applied for a job recently 
and I applied for it in a very creative way that was true to myself. And what I mean by that was I, I created a cover video instead of writing a cover letter and I was really happy with what I produced and felt that it spoke to me and anyone who looked at it would then have more of an experience of me rather than just reading uh, text on a page. Uh, it turns out I didn't get the job. In fact, I didn't even get an interview. Now, two things happened there. The first thing was I was really pleased about that outcome. So I don't think I really wanted the job in the first place. It was the first job I've ever applied for that I was happy not to get interviewed for. <laughs> but, but, that then, tells you <laughs> but then my ego shows up and says, well, Michael, they just don't understand you. Yeah, I did some <laughs> of that too. Yeah, yeah. 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 It was just, it was just a, it was a bad scenario where I wasn't really at my, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. So I guess I think of excuses or I think of ego a little bit as maybe excuses that we use to make ourselves feel better. Yeah. I think something like that. Um, I've caught myself on occasion when uh, somebody said something that really flatters my ego and I kind of know it's coming and then my, you know, my, my mind's going through this process of don't pay any attention to that. That's just going to flatter your ego. But then my ego says, look, let's just take a quick look because they wrote it and then we'll forget about it later. And that's, that's my ego doing that whole stealth mode on me. Like, look, we can just totally look at this. We don't have to absorb it. <laughs> John, I've got a question for you. Yeah, hit me. In this book. I'm not really sure what the right question is, so I kind of wrote it down in two ways, and I'll let you choose how you want to answer it. What type of person should read this book, or when should you read this book? I'll answer both of them. I think anybody should read this book. Yeah, I think anyone that's that wants to live a better life and wants to have more self-awareness and wants to learn from the incredible stories, real, you know, real life stories, everyone from Howard Hughes. Um, I can't remember her first name, Graham. The last name is Graham that owned the Washington post. Bill Walsh, the coach for the uh, San Francisco 49ers. Um, just all kinds of examples of where ego came into play and wasn't dealt with. Or maybe where it could have come into play and it was thwarted or uh, mitigated. Some some great examples there. Particularly, I, I like how yeah he he showed some of those how ego undermined people. But then some really good examples of uh, people being true to their purpose and their values and not letting ego play the role. So you kind of got that nice contrast. And and the other the other good story in there was Genghis Khan too. Don't forget that. Refresh my memory on that one. Uh, just how um, uh, his armies, uh, as they they raided, took on uh, the cultures that uh, that they invaded. So when they saw something that worked better, they didn't let their ego get in the way of taking on that new technology or that new thought or uh, that new way of doing something. They just recognized it was a better idea, so they they took it on. That is coming back to me now. In terms of your question of like, when should someone read it? I suppose, I don't know. I think you could read it at any time. Um, it might be useful. Like, I was wondering what prompted you to read it. I mean, were you reading it because you were in a transition or why now? Yeah, it was It was um, during this life change that uh, I just wanted to kind of, I guess, dig deeper into myself. And uh, I was looking for books that kind of explored Things like, um, you know, creativity, uh, motivation, um, relationship with money and, you know, ego uh, just seemed to be something that could use a little bit of exploration. So, uh, you know, I think with a lot of these things, I just, I kind of read uh, the summary uh, uh, or kind of the free introduction of the book. And if it's speaking to me, um, then I'll, I'll buy the book and, and read the whole book. And if it's not speaking to me right now, then I'll just kind of leave it aside for the moment. I love what you said about money. There was a section, I guess it was like right around page 117 and 118, and he says, it's time to sit down and think about what's truly important to you and then take steps to forsake the rest. Without this, success will not be pleasurable, 
or nearly as complete as it could be, or worse, it won't last. This is especially true with money. If you don't know how much you need, the default easily becomes more. And so, without thinking, critics' energy is diverted from a person's calling toward filling a bank account. I thought this was interesting. I had to think about this a little bit, this quote. When you, com- when you quote, combine security and ambition, the plagiarist and disgraced journalist Jonah Lair said when reflecting back on his fall, you get an inability to say no to things. So I guess they, you, you say yes. Again, the combination there of insecurity and ambition. I thought this was really a poignant challenge to figure out how much money you need. And I don't know about you, but one of the huge success factors to me being able to take my leave from Red Hat was that I knew down to the dollar how much money it costs to live every month. And so in that respect, I knew how much money I needed. And as I look to the future, I also know how much money I need. What do you think about that whole notion of figuring out how much you need? Yeah, I, I, I like that. Um, I'm uh, at a similar point trying to understand what that is. And I think there's two things. Well, there's, I guess there's three things that have really helped me. One is just the, the nuts and bolts of you know basic financial understanding. So having a budget, understanding your, your income and your outgoings and, and how that's matching up. Um, but beyond that, I think two things that have helped me, or a few things that have helped me, maybe there's more than one. In a lot of this um, internal work that I've been doing and understanding my values and my purpose and what I'm trying to achieve, nothing has come up that talked about getting a big pile of money. So I've kind of gone, okay, okay. You know, I think normally whenever I think about things, family and health are kind of the top of the list um, for me. And so I can see now that money just plays a role in helping me to um, serve those aspects of my life. Um, but a couple of uh, a couple of other interesting things that have happened are um, a, good, a good story for you. Um, my mother just turned 80 this year and uh, she wanted to go to uh, the beach for, she only really wanted to go to, to the beach for a day. The beach is about an hour's drive from where I live. Um, but uh, her movement's a little bit restricted. And so we decided to to take this opportunity to turn it into something a bit more special. Um, for the 80th birthday. Um, so we got the extended family together and we rented uh, a massive uh, three-story, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six-bedroom uh, mansion uh, on the beach. Uh, this, place, this place had everything. I mean, it had pool tables, ping-pong tables, two barbecues, pool. It, it had everything you want, almost too much. You almost felt like you were in this place. Like <laughs> This is a little too much for me. Now, the funny thing was... During the day, you would see people in camper vans pull up on the road in front of the house and park right in front of the beach and get out and, you know, play some music, maybe throw a ball around, uh, have a beer and maybe cook up a little bit of food. And it occurred to me, they're having exactly the same experience that we're having. It's just that they did it in a camper van and we chose this very expensive mansion to have that experience. So that was kind of a turning point for me, I think, that and, and journaling every day and understanding um, what are the things that I'm grateful for are often the small things in life that everyone has access- accessibility to. So, you know, for me, I'm starting to understand that, that money plays a role in, you know, um, providing for my family, um, keeping me healthy, um, but it's not the thing I'm trying to get more of in my life. And that's not to say that my way is the right way because if I go back to that quote that I love, that I, that I, that I love, <laughs> uh, you know, we're all on different life paths. So I'm just trying to understand how money plays a role in my life path. Mm-hmm. Nice. What's next on your list? I want to tie in something that wasn't called out um, specifically in the book, but made me think of something I read more recently about pleasure versus happiness. Mm. And the thing I read recently was something about um, pleasure is, you know, pleasure is eating the second piece of birthday cake, uh, you know, or, you know, pleasure is, um, you know, uh, not doing the work right now, but, but doing something uh, that's, that's, that's more relaxing. And within that, you have that instant gratification, but you have sometimes a sense of regret afterwards. So the second piece of cake tastes delicious now, but 30 minutes later, maybe your stomach's thinking, you know what, I, I could have done with a carrot instead. Whereas 
happiness is, you know, losing two kilos of weight and feeling much lighter and healthier. Um, you know, happiness is doing the work and feeling a sense of satisfaction afterwards. So I think, you know, I kind of, I kind of wrote this in the, the failure section uh, about, you know, understand. I think it ties back really into the purpose and the values and understanding that, yeah, I think there's time for pleasure, but recognize that pleasure is not happiness, that pleasure is pleasure, and happiness can often be the result of um, something that takes more work to get to, I think. Well, and I hear there that it's more lasting too. Yeah, for sure. So we were talking about Bill Walsh. And um, on page 167, which is in the failure section, uh, I'll just read a couple parts of this and then see what else at the context. The year before Walsh took over the 49ers, they were 2-14. and 14. His first year as head coach and general manager, they went 2-14. and 14. Can you imagine the disappointment? All the changes, all the work that went into this first year and to end up in the exact same spot as the incompetent coach who preceded you? That's how most of us think. And then we'd probably start blaming other people. Walsh realized he, quote, had to look for evidence elsewhere that it was turning around. For him, it was in how the games were being played, the good decisions and changes that were being made to the organization. Two seasons later, they won the Super Bowl, and then several more after that. At rock bottom, those victories must have felt like a long way off which is why you have to be able to see past and through. And so what the question I took from that was, as I'm building my business, what are the ways that I can measure its success even when it doesn't seem like it's outwardly successful? So you and I were, actually, I think I was sharing something with, him, with you a few days ago. So one of the, and I'm getting some of this from also from, Steve Chandler, which is just this idea of you're successful over time by showing up and doing whatever it is that will build that success. So how many conversations am I having with people every week? How many people am I contacting? How many, It's just these like, I don't know, almost like ground level tasks that are essentially investing in the future. So I was wondering what you thought of those well, I wonder what you thought of this little section and if you had any similar or different ideas. I've been nodding the whole time that you've been speaking um, because he talks about too, um, it was the, the little things that I think led to um, professionalism. So he talked about, you know, the locker room always had to be clean and tidy and the players weren't mm. allowed to swear. Um, you know, the coaches needed to wear a shirt and a tie and, you know, uh, you know, things had to be done with a certain precision uh, and rigor. And then by measuring those things, I think he saw it was working, even though the score hadn't changed uh, in the games. Um, and I think there's something about that. You know, if you, if you look at the book, you know, it does talk about the discipline. And so if you're, if you're measuring the discipline and the professionalism, then the results should take should take care of themselves. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Have, I don't have any proof here myself, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I would put myself in the same camp. But it just, yeah, it just, it just has to work. I mean, yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. That's why. I, that's why I keep thinking. Like, what, what have you got to lose? At the bare minimum, you're going to be a more disciplined, more professional person. At the bare minimum. Yeah, and if I have a bunch of conversations with people that aren't that great, well, over time they're going to get better. They are, and and I would I would still say that even a not great coaching conversation is better than no coaching conversation. Mm -hmm. I, I, I haven't had an experience yet where the coaching conversation has made the person worse off than when they walked into the conversation. <laughs> I've certainly reflected and thought about how I could have improved it, but even in the feedback and asking them about, you know, what they got out of it, they took away things and they even took away things that I didn't see. So right, right. I think that part you were talking about too was referring to, or I think it ties into your, so in the failure section, they talk about your own scorecard. So again, going back to your purpose and values and having your own scorecard that you're measuring with. And you talked about it earlier in terms of um, success. What, what would you say about, about people looking to 
uh, how you know how could one approach defining their own measure of success? Well, first of all, I'm a huge, huge fan, and I'm encouraging people to do this all the time to define what's to, like to set their own definition of a success, which is a total ripoff from Tony Robbins. But the first time I heard that, I was like, "Wait, I get to decide? Is that okay?" <laughs> and realized, you know, well, yeah, it's it's my life. And, you know, but also wanting to live that in a way that's internally consistent with myself. One thing I do with a lot of times in a, in a starting up a coaching relationship with someone, we identify their values and then I have them score on a scale of one to 10, how well they're honoring those values. So if someone says, well, I have a real value around having fun and, you know, seizing the day. Well, how well are you doing that? How well are you honoring it? In terms of personal success, I think one way to do that is to to periodically check in on your values. And I encourage people to do this as well, which is make a list of your values. Print it out. Write it out. Post it on your wall. When you start the day, sit down with your list of values and just thoughtfully consider each one. Hopefully you don't have too many of them. I find that after... I don't know, six or seven, it becomes a little unwieldy. But I've done this myself. In fact, the story I tell a lot to clients is I went on a vacation a year or two ago and got back from that vacation and I was not recharged. I was not rejuvenated. I was frustrated and I was kind of angry and just kind of way off center. And it was the first Monday back to work and I happened to have the foresight to over my cup of coffee to just pull out what I'd done actually is I printed off my values in a font that I like and I stuck them in a little plastic sleeve so they're just kind of durable. And I was reflecting on my values and as I looked through each one, I realized that on this vacation, I hadn't honored any of them. It was this moment of epiphany of like, oh, <laughs> well, that explains an awful lot right there. And then in the spirit of the journaling that you're talking about, which I highly recommend the five-minute journal if anyone's looking for a journal. It really does take five minutes. So there's there's three questions. You list three things that you're grateful for. And then the next question is, list three things that would make today great. And so with that in mind, I looked at my values and I thought, well, the things that, what's going to make today great is to figure out some very, very, very small ways to honor some of my values. So I think that's a really great way to measure success. Could be the end of the day, the beginning of the day. Um, but for me, it really, really comes back to what is success for you? And then looking for little ways to measure it that you can. I like that because um, the journaling in particular, when you were talking about that, um, talk, you know, really speaks to me in terms of being in the present. So you know, when we talk about what's your measure for success, um, you know, sometimes that can be a very future-looking statement. Um, uh, but by honoring, I think, those small things every day, it shows you how you can be successful every day. So yeah. You know, Maybe within my values, I'm not at a 10 where I really aspire to be. But yeah, what are the things that I can do today that honor my values and work me towards 10? And that's success, right? No, totally. In fact, and then the other, there's, so this five-minute journal that I'm talking about, that I'm raving about, the beginning of the day is the three things you're grateful for, the three things that make today great, and then an affirmation that you write out. At the end of the day, and I think this gets to this idea of success, you write down Three amazing things that happened today. Now, I, I've given this journal to some clients and I always advise them, don't get too hung up on the words. Like just, it can be three positive things that happened today. Like, I don't know that I have amazing things that happen every day. Although maybe I, maybe I need to check in on my perspective there. Then the other question I think that is fantastic is what could have made today even better? So maybe it was successful, but what, have, what would have made it even more successful? And I have found myself writing the same answer several days in a row. And then finally, after the fourth or fifth day, you know, actually putting that into action and the day actually going better or, quote, being more successful. Direct question coming away, John. Have you ever written nothing in that, yes. uh, in that space? Like nothing could have made today better. <laughs> I did that recently. Have you? Yes, yes. Is it allowed? <laughs> uh, totally allowed. <laughs> yeah, I'm flipping through it now. Yeah, September 8th, nothing. September 10th, nothing. And then lots of 
get up earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a good place to be, right? Because I don't know, for me, it's otherwise you're on this endless treadmill of never being perfect and hopefully one day being perfect. Whereas this kind of turns it around and says, well, it's always a journey. It's always going to be a journey. And that's great that you're working on it. But also there's, I guess there's moments in journeys where you stop and take a rest, right? And, and the fact that you acknowledge that today just went just fine for me and I don't feel like I need to change it is a good thing. Well, what's interesting, you said perfect, but this is, their question is what could have made it better? So, so it's like, I, yeah, or maybe, hmm, or maybe it's the idea. I guess when I, when I write on those days, nothing, it's just a sense of, yeah, I'm content with how I showed up and what I did and what happened. And I did all that I could think to do. Yeah. Good point. I think, um, using it as that reflection point, like, you know, the, the best version, what would the best version of me want to have done differently today or something like that? The, the one I think I wrote for so yesterday I started to identify kind of some, some key, some key tasks that I want to start achieving. And then when I was actually working, I wasn't focused on those. I was focused on things that were less important. Uh, and so obviously when I got to the reflection, it was like, ah, okay. Uh, you, you didn't focus on the things you needed to focus on. Uh, and so it became, it became a good tool to reflect on my day and then incorporate that into the habit building that I'm trying to do. So, okay, you didn't achieve it today, but that's fine. You're human. Um, now you're aware of it. You know, what are you going to do differently tomorrow to make sure that you have more success there? And that is, I think, the most invaluable part of the whole tool is you got that feedback in a 24-hour cycle versus – you know, nine months later, you're meeting with a coach because you can't figure out why you can't meet any of your goals. Yeah, I never thought I never thought of the rapid feed, rapid feedback cycle in it. Oh, I think of it like a little mini retrospective, like from a software sprint. <laughs> what you know, because you always ask that question in a retrospective, what could have been better? And then, yeah, for me, it's seeing the pattern of, you know, I've written down the, for the last three days that today would have been better if I had not read the news or if I hadn't wasted so much time scrolling on Twitter. And then, you know, as I'm, if I'm consciously planning the next day, which I don't always do, <laughs> if I'm smart enough in that moment to say, you remember, dummy, when you read the news the last three days, it didn't really help you. What, what would make today great? Not reading the news. Blocking Twitter. So, John, tie it back for me. Yeah. With what you just said, it makes me think of the Aspire section in uh, Ego is the Enemy. Uh, you know, where you're aspiring to, you know, develop your coaching practice and, and podcasting and, you know, the wonderful things that you do. And then you're talking about being distracted, you know, with news feeds and Twitter feeds. Uh, and I think that speaks to that, that first section where he talks about the ego showing up, causing that distraction. Like, how do you see your ego playing a role in choosing to look at the news feeds oh. rather than doing the important work. That's the, that's the, oh, I can handle this. That's, see, that's, yeah, that's just, it's just breathing my own exhaust. Oh, yeah, you know, let me, you know what, I'm going to feel better if I check the news and, you know, this negative trend that I've been observing, if it changes into a positive direction, I'm actually going to feel good and more encouraged. And I can handle whatever I read there. So I'm going to go read the news. And then, you know, after I've clicked through like 12 different stories and I, like I haven't felt any better. <laughs> so I guess I would think of the ego as kind of, it's like this little deceitful devil. I relate to what you said just before we started this podcast. Uh, my browser's got a bunch of tabs open and uh, I saw a news feed and I saw an article that the headline grabbed me and I clicked on it and it was like no depth to it and completely pointless. And then I, I just kind of shocked myself like, wait a minute, you're meeting with John in five minutes to talk about this book. Um, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't you be better off like reviewing the notes that you wrote rather than <laughs> checking this stupid thing? <laughs> yeah. No, I think, I think you're really onto something there in terms of ego getting in the way of discipline. Like I think ego, ego tells us, this is interesting. So the distinction between ego and inner critic I think ego, ego tells us that things are better than they are. And 
the inner critic tells us that things are worse than they are. Yeah, and in the book they talked about something about, what do you call it? Um, the, the radio station that plays in your head and out of one speaker is coming you know, all, all the reasons why you're better than you think you are uh, or uh, the, the reasons you think you're better than you really are. And then in the other speakers, all the, uh, all the negative thoughts that undermine you. Yeah, and so we're just this walking, what, paradox? I don't know, is paradox the right word? (laughs) So I guess going back to my children, you you were talking about about how disciplined they are at learning the piano, and you were kind of amazed at, like, how do they do that? And maybe it's because ego doesn't get in their way. Uh, They're they're too young to really let it drive them around, so they just kind of get up and and do it because that's what they're supposed to do. Or they're afraid of the consequences. I mean, what's, oh, it like, they, what's it like to live in the Doyle household? <laughs> no, this is it. This is it. This is it. My wife, my, so my wife knows how to play piano, and she's the one giving them weekly lessons. And okay. then they've got a set of um, uh, practice uh, tasks that they need to do every day during the week. Now, in my role in all of this was quite clever. I said, I'm going to stay out of the way. Right? I'm not going to nag you to do your lessons. I'm not going to tell you anything about your lessons. It's completely up to you to do your lessons or not do your lessons. And if you do your lessons, you will benefit in these ways. And if you don't do them, you won't. And what I would like you to do is give it a real red hot go for, you know, one term of the school year. So that's 10 weeks. So for 10 weeks, I want you just to commit to doing it. If after 10 weeks you decide you don't like it, then you can give it up. But give it a red hot go for 10 weeks. Anyway, I haven't had to say anything. They just get up, they do it. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm just thinking of that for my son, and I just can't see that happening. They must really they, like. Do they really love it? Um, I'm not sure. They they enjoy it. Um, they obviously they feel progress. Um, the youngest was is about to finish one of her exercise books, and in the back it's got a certificate, and she seemed very happy that she's soon going to be able to get her certificate. <laughs> I love um, it. so that was really good, but. Yeah, to, to me, all I keep seeing is the lesson of they're practicing every day, they're improving. I haven't been practicing at the things I'm interested in every day. I'm not improving. <laughs> mm. And I feel like he talked about that. Oh, I've been reading so many different books right now. Maybe it wasn't in this book, but it was the idea. And I, I give this challenge to anyone out there. You know, whatever it is that you do, what is it that... what? What are like some of the core aspects of what you do that if you were to practice them every day would make you better? And it doesn't have to be this like huge, you know, you don't have to go work out at the gym for an hour and a half. It could be, um, I don't know. How do software engineers get better? Do you know? Uh, I'm not a software engineer. I suspect, uh, you know, through facing challenging problems, uh, and talking to others about their experience and learning from others uh, would be, you know, a couple of ways they could they could grow and develop. Well, like I was trying to think, like, do they read book? I I know some software engineers listen to this. So I was trying to make it real for them, <laughs> but um, well, I guess I could just make it real for. So for myself, it's it's consciously listening to a podcast. In fact, they did it today. I was so I've eliminated. Well, I mostly kind of except when i'm sneaky and i can quote handle it i've shifted my news consumption to podcasts because there's nothing to click on and i can skip through it and anyway but today i made a conscious decision no news podcast listening to a, listen to a coaching podcast so for me it's it's reading or it's consuming stuff about other coaches being a better coach um that kind of thing. And it doesn't have to be long. It could be 15 minutes, 30 minutes, could be five. But it's that idea of, like you're saying with your daughters, it's practice over time equals mastery and learning and success. Yeah, I'm a big fan of don't make it complicated, um, don't make it difficult. So that idea of even just five minutes a day is better than zero minutes. Yes. And five minutes a day will start establishing the habit that when you stop doing it, you'll feel like something's missing and mm-hmm. you can grow it. Mm-hmm. You can grow it and grow it and shrink it as you need to. And and this is great. You're talking about learning because this totally ties back into the book, um, both in the Aspire section and where else did I see it? Uh, I think in the success success section as well. But um, I, I put it down as able. 
<laughs> always be learning <laughs> mm. to make you to make you to make you able. Um, but yeah, this idea that yeah, definitely uh, when you get into the success phase, you can get to a point of I know it all, uh, and then that restricts your ability to kind of take on new information. Uh, and so, keeping yourself in the mindset of always be learning. And I find what's I wouldn't say working well for me because I really don't enjoy it, but when I find things that challenge me and I want to shut them down instantly or find a reason not to believe in it or look into it, I kind of realize, oh, that's one of the things I need to look at because it's it's nudging up against one of my values or my beliefs. And if I don't look at it, I'm creating that self-sealing logic bubble and mm-hmm. keeping in it. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, and I hear there like when I was talking about this coaching thing that didn't go well for me, it was like I didn't want to – yeah, it was that whole notion of not wanting to look at it. Like, take a really honest look at, like, well, did you really do your best work? Mm, no, it wasn't. But then it was like, it was really easy to, like, slip at all the excuses of why versus just owning it and just being like, well, okay, wasn't my best work. And and why is it that I can't just sit with the fact that I failed and that it wasn't my best work? Yeah. And, you know, if you look at that in the context of the failure section of the book, you know, trying to understand – what did I write down here? Uh, trying to understand what did you learn from that failure that you can incorporate into your life to not have this failure again. Uh, so in your case, it, it could be more preparation was the, was the, was the lesson. Uh, or it could be, you know, one of the other things I kind of heard you talk about was the maybe the difference in values. So their values didn't align with your values or something in there. So maybe the lesson is be clearer on my values and not apply for these things in the first place. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, rather than, rather than blaming like, uh, you know, they just don't understand me, they don't get me or, you know, it's, it's not fair or, you know, whatever, trying to understand, well, what can I take away from this experience that will help me be better in the future? Yeah, and there's – what's also – important in there is the openness, the openness to what did I learn? And so I'll pat myself on the back a little bit here. Hopefully that's not my ego. (laughs) But so I had this experience where I I classified it as a failure. And yet I was kind of open to, well, hmm, I wonder what I could have done different. I wonder what I could have done better. It was that openness that combined with some very direct feedback from a client. And I, I, always start my coaching relationships with an agreement from the client that they will tell me if something's not working. And someone took me up on it fairly early on and told me what was not working for them in the way that I was interacting with them. And what was fascinating was there was a tiny bit of a theme in what they were talking about that had come up in this context with this other situation. They weren't the same situation, but I was able to kind of look at all of them and then another a video that I had been watching on coaching and kind of watching this person's style. And I thought, oh, if I put those three things together, there's this little thing that if I just took that from that could probably make my overall approach better. And so I tried it out. And then I checked in with the person the next time and I said, okay, try to take a different approach here. How did that feel? How did that work? And they were like, yes, it totally worked. So, yeah, I think that openness to mm, doesn't feel good, but instead of trying to brush it away or explain it away or blame it, it's sitting with it and being with it. And I think this ties in really well to towards to the end of the book, the section where he talks about blame, and then he ends by talking about love, which I thought was like, whoa, where did that come from? But it really kind of worked. So here's what he says on page 260. In failure or adversity, it's so easy to hate. Hate defers blame. It makes someone else responsible. It's a distraction, too. We don't do much else when we're busy getting revenge or investigating the wrongs that have supposedly been done to us. Does this get us any clearer to where we want to be? No. It just keeps us where we are, or worse, arrests our development entirely. If we are already successful, as Hearst was, it tarnishes our legacy and turn sour what should be our golden years. Meanwhile, love is right there. Egoless, open, positive, vulnerable, peaceful, and productive. 
I was going to uh, mention that same part as well uh, as you were speaking. And there are examples in the book where he talks about ego bringing paranoia. And you can see how blame and, and hate, I guess, fuel that because you're, you're dehumanizing the person and making it all about you. Uh, and in reality, if you just stop and think, this is another human being, they have family, they have friends, they have thoughts and feelings, they have good days, they have bad days, it kind of brings them back down to the same and brings you back down to the same level, which I think was part of, part of the whole underlying theme of the book was we're special and we're not special. Um, he talked about um, Neil deGrasse Tyson's quote about uh, when he looks up at the universe, he realizes he's both big and small. He's, he's small because he's an infinitesimal part of the universe, but he's big because he's a part of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was really the kind of the whole balance of the book is to understand, you know, we're, we're on these different life paths that make us special, but we're all on the same journey of life that make us the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what I hear in there is keep yourself in check. Keep yourself in check, baby. <laughs> Any other things you want to check in on before we wrap this up? Or any challenges you want to give people? I think we've done a great job of covering the book. And I love the way that it's ended on kind of the last part of the book. I think that's great. And, and <laughs> Is that mean, are you? <laughs> someone's going to bust us the saying that you were a little <laughs> ego there saying we did a great job. <laughs> we did it just pat, pat ourselves on the back. It's so awesome. I did like one of the things that I love helping people with is uh, getting clarity and taking action because I believe that with clarity and action, you end up having amazing outcomes and you grow your self-belief. So in the spirit of that, how would you help someone turn this knowledge into action? I would start with some kind of daily, well, I can't say enough about the five-minute journal and I don't get any money if you buy one. By the way, I do the written version and somehow I convinced Michael to start and he's doing the electronic version and he believe he loves it. So I would, I guess I would start with maybe a daily reflection that at the end of the day or the beginning of the day, I think the end of the day makes more sense, but you know, again, there's no, you define what success is for you would be some type of a daily check-in to just say, how did I do today? Where was, where was my ego? Did it uh, trip me up? Did it undermine me? And if it did, I would ask, what can I learn from that? And what can I do differently? Versus trying to explain why it really wasn't my fault or get into the whole blame or deflection thing. How about you? Love it. I'm going to be less specific uh, than you were, although I really love your specific example. Um, because I feel there were like many jumping off points here for people. So my challenge would be to listen to this podcast and take one thing out of it and work on it, commit to working on it for two weeks um, to, to build a habit. So that could be reading the book. Uh, it could be uh, looking at your purpose or your values. Uh, it could be uh, the journaling, as you spoke about, John. And yes, I have the electronic version and I am loving it. Um, so I think there are there are a few things. It could be define your own measure of success. So maybe just, you just pick one uh, of the many things and commit five minutes a day to uh, looking at it, inspecting on it, writing about it, um, working on it uh, for two weeks and, and see what happens. Love it. So if people want to find out more about you, Michael, or contact you or who knows what else, where might they find you? Uh, they can go to my website, which is www.changetheending.co. Uh, and I called it Change the Ending because uh, it's this idea that we're all on a journey and at any point we can make decisions that uh, that change the ending. So uh, I think... Uh, Listening to this podcast is one action you can take to change the ending if you're looking to go in a different direction.
Thanks for listening to The John Polster Show. Notes, links, and all that other good stuff for this episode are at johnpolster.com slash podcast. Send your questions, ideas, or a simple hello to podcast at johnpolster.com. Want to stay up to date on new episodes and receive notifications of upcoming events? Register your email address at johnpolster.com slash updates. <laughs>